G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, those in life chat music and more. Our feature guest this episode, Kathy Renner. Birth of a new record to death and everything in between with a strong lean to the latter. In an unscripted chat with the artist who's been known for the last 17 years as part of the group Vincent's Chair. More about them and a 40-minute conversation in a moment. But first... In the box. Ten years' time from Juno and Polaris Music-nominated Cal Matheson. A single, easy to find online as folkisdead.com. Last full-length album in 2018, Youth, that included a number called Astronaut. This latest was A Wash of Motion and Signature Banjo by Frank Drozetti and joined on guitars and vocals by Jim Bryson. Same Bryson that released a $30 single called Better on Drugs to offset streaming costs. News a follow-up to Jackie Marshall's 2018 Lithith Shrugs comes a new release recorded a few months back, a release of solo acoustic 60s-inspired folks and blues influence numbers learned as a kid in Brisbane, Australia in the 90s. While others were diving into and from stage to Nirvana, Marshall kept company with Dylan and Joplin. Releases out September 2019 on pre-order now. Someone who was big in the 90s was Michael Hutchins of In Excess, and this week in my inbox, a new release noted to be from him called Mystify, in line with the cinema release of a documentary of his life and passing from his longtime visual collaborator and mate. It's a double album with four tracks totaling just under an hour, an oral delight to bring back memories of the great performer, as I'm sure the film version by all reports does too. Audio production weaving the audio documentary and music, which includes rare and live demo cuts, equal to the stylish ways of a late artist himself. One more for this episode, debut album from Jare, stolen from the audience of my life, which opens with the single Crashland, about a stranger who died in his arms. Genre, folk punk. Album is about those that have come and gone in this Brisbane Australian singer-songwriter's life often involving death. In the last few days, broadcaster Stephen the Ghost Walker passed away, speaking of death, for 37 years presented on Triple R and for 14 years was their program manager, reinventing radio from sound, format and striving to share the undiscovered corners of music. Known for shows like Ghost in the Machine and Skull Cave, to name just two. He was Australia's John Peel to many. Appointment listening on a Friday afternoon before starting the weekend. For a gig to celebrate 30 years on air, Nick Cave and Dirty Three played. It was also to assist with his medical bills though, as MS was also part of his everyday living. His first broadcast was in 1981, putting the headphones up just last August. Cancer in the end took someone who before downloads knew how to find and share a great track. Only met the ghost once, a great share of their craft and passionate one at that. In the show notes, some words from the station he worked with, former breakfast host Jeff Sparrow, and also a link to his long chat with none other than Patty Smith. Speaking of chat, time for our very own feature chat. Kathy Renner, founder of Vincent's Chair, has gone solo with their latest Inside My Head, Contemplative and retrospective is one take from a reviewer. The release glides across genres with ease and finds creative hooks to sustain the lyrical experience. 
Rana invited Radio Notes to chat with them outside of their head for this feature chat. Kathy Renner, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you. I want to start the conversation starting off with its title, Inside My Head. How much of a reflection was this on your own thinking? It's all a reflection of my thinking. I think my best life is lived inside my head. The reality is nowhere near as exciting. We're not going to talk too much about the album, but it'd be nice to get a feel of how long this album took. Today is the anniversary of its conception. It's the anniversary of when we started recording it. So the song's probably a bit older than that. Yeah, a song like A Horse Called Pablo took at least a year to write. You mentioned Pablo there. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about the fascination with horses before we do the drawing of horses. When did you learn that you could draw them? Uh, my mother taught me, actually. I always loved to draw as a child, loved it. And then, of course, I worked out I liked horses and I needed to know how to draw a horse. My mum is an artist, was an artist herself, so she taught me the rudiments of it, bought me books that showed you how to draw horses and just went from there. When was your first encounter with a horse face-to-face? Oh, wow. I learnt to ride on a horse called Pablo, in fact, when I was in year eight or something like that. So that's a long time ago. School excursion. We all went down and we all rode in single file. Got taught the basics of it all. Were you then encouraged to, to go and visit another horse or the same horse again? Didn't visit the same horse, but, you know, if there's a horse walking around or tied up in a field I'll stop and go and have a chat and try and feed it something I think they're beautiful looking things and I like beautiful looking things very elegant and highly strung and spirited I like I think I must like that and they're very intelligent too where do you start when you draw a horse the head then work my way down it sometimes get you, gets you in trouble because the head is too, bigger than the body. But you just keep practising, keep trying. That's a sense of proportion, isn't yeah. it? Did you ever think about starting with the legs and the body and no. getting a sense from there? No, never. It's always been the head. Both wild and free. Yep. But also servituded well. Where do you think of horses firstly of the two? Oh, that's a tough one. I think somewhere down the middle, really. Mm. Because I think humans and horses have always had a pretty close connection. We like to think we're in control of them, but at the end of the day, (laughs) they could do whatever they feel like, couldn't they, at any given moment. Go back to Pablo and that first time that you sat upon a horse. What was the conversation you had with Pablo? Well, I don't, I don't think I actually had an actual conversation. I, I was just thrilled to be on a horse for the first time. You know, you dream about that moment and then there you are. And I was just a kid, so I don't think I appreciated it fully, but, oh, yeah, you know, more than close to, to achieving that dream of sitting on a horse at least. I used to wish I could have one. The next best thing would be to sit on that thing. So the memory is being on. The memory is being on. 
and that it was called Pablo and I seem to recall I did a good job for my first ride because the instructor would we all ride single file and she was up on a rise looking down on us and she called out something like well done on Pablo so I knew that she was talking about me so. <laughs> oh boy Let's keep you in high school, year eight. <laughs> well, suppose you're still there. Okay. What was high school like for Kath? Oh, it was fine. I, I, you know, I'm not not a great scholar. Not that I didn't do my best and didn't do well, but I liked the social aspect of it. I was quite a sporty kid, so I got involved in lots of sporting things, and then of course music. I socialised with lots of different groups. I had good friends. Good times with that. By the time you turned 18, so just entering adulthood, yep. you were a bit of a songwriter. Yes. Yes, I was. In fact, when I was in year f- five or six, I saw a guitar for the first time and that was it. You know, I'd been drawing and drawing up until then and suddenly everything changed. I decided I wanted to have a guitar was told I needed to learn the ukulele first and while I was doing that I was practicing the guitar and those were the days before internet so we had the little manuals I used to to teach myself the songs and the chords and I ran out of songs in that book and there was no new book to go to so I just made up my own and have been doing it since then really Where did you see that first guitar? At school We used to have religious instruction every Tuesday or Thursday and the woman who took my class, we found out her husband took another class and he had the guitar and we begged her to swap with him one week because he just seemed to play guitar and sing with his group and we did all the serious stuff. So (laughs) she swapped with him one week. That's when I saw it. And as I mentioned, when you turned 18, at the door of adulthood, you were there writing songs, performing with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. I did, yes, that's right. I, in high school, I had a little group, little trio, us three girls, and we used to sing my stuff. And we entered a competition with 5AN at the time. The prize was to perform at the Festival Theatre with the ASO playing your song. It nearly didn't happen because the other two were twins and a year below me and the year that this concert opportunity happened was their final year at school, around about exam times. And their mum said, I don't, I don't think you can do it, girls. And, of course, I said, well, I'm going to do it. So as soon as I said I was going to do it, they said, oh, well, we're going to do it too. So we all sang together. What kind of upbringing was it? You mentioned your mother was into drawing, into the arts. Yeah. Mum was very artistic, actually. She was a singer too. Dad was the sporty one. Mum was the artistic one. So I had a bit of both, which I'm very grateful for, actually, because I I like them both. What's one of the proudest moments that you had with your mum, with your performance? I did a classical degree, so I'm a classically trained singer, and we would do lunchtime concerts on a Friday. And she came down one day, because I'm from the Barossa, so she took the day off work 
came down to hear me do this is in my final year we all had to do a lunchtime recital my mum was a classical singer she was thrilled and I think a little bit surprised at what was coming out of my mouth she said you could be a classical singer if you want to be but of course I knew I wasn't ever going to be a classical singer I loved the discipline of it I loved the repertoire but it's just my personality wouldn't fit with that sort of strictness of you know I, I would have had to do exactly as I'm told and I'd never do that <laughs> but there was this intersection where mum and daughter had yeah the moment of classics yeah yeah no mum was always proud of me but uh, I, there's a lot about it that she didn't quite understand because I you know wanted to do the contemporary stuff she just I remember she had to go into a record shop to buy me my first. <laughs> oh, it was really hard for her to do it. But, you know, I wanted some pop record and she had to ask for it. She didn't really know what she was asking for. But she did it because, you know, knew I wanted it. This was the first record you would have owned. Yes. Not necessarily bought with your own money because no. your mum yes. did it. Yes, This first record you bought. Let's ask the question. What was my first record? What was that first oh, record? I think it was ABBA. Best of. <laughs> it had Banger Boomerang and Hasta Manana and Ring Ring. I'm reading their book at the moment. It's really interesting. When did jazz then become a thing? They used to play the Manhattan Transfer on the radios. One of many, you know, those were the days they didn't have formats. Everything was played on the one station. So you got to hear everything. And I quite liked it. I must have bought a best of another best of Java Jive that was the big hit oh Chanson d'Amour that was another one they used to play on the radio and then of course when I got to uni I joined the Adelaide Connection and the whole world opened up to me mm. the whole world of jazz at least and that was wonderful do you still keep jazz in your back pocket considering the musicians that you work with these days I think so because there are several songs on this new album that certainly lend themselves to that. I love harmony, and you get a lot of that in jazz music. Interesting harmonic changes that always fascinate me. You mentioned that Mum came from the Barossa. Was that the family home in the Barossa? I suppose it was, really, mm. yeah. What did you learn whilst you were in the Barossa? I think I learned that community is really important. Yeah, it's like a big family, really. Everybody seems to know everybody and everybody's business, which is not so good. The Barossa's beautiful-looking place. What it, oh, that's a hard question. I don't go there much anymore because... My mum passed away two years ago, so I have no need to go there. Although my dad's still alive, but he's in Uganda, which is a bit past. Although, no, I shouldn't say I don't get to the Barossa much. My sister lives in the Barossa. Hmm. So I go up there and see her and then pop up and see dad as well while I'm there. As a fan of walking, 
I do like a good walk. Mm. The Brossa would have given you a lot of chance through your younger years to do so. Were you a big walker in the younger years? No, but I did play a lot of sport. So the outdoors did play a part? Yes, definitely. I played hockey and softball. Except for netball, I like everything. I don't understand netball. It's just a very strange game to me. But I do like sport a lot, follow the AFL and I love the tennis, you know, with Roger Federer. He's the greatest player that ever lived. <laughs> but not netball? No. <laughs> no. It's weird where we draw lines, eh? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate it, get me wrong, but I think the problem was my first experience with netball was when I was six or something and they put me on wing defence I was standing up against this giant and there was no way I was ever going to get the ball and I thought what what sort of game is this it's stupid so I stopped that we mentioned on the wireless there was various music so let's ask something else of you okay what's the fascination with Elvis <gasps> how do you know this about me John how do you know it's about me well first of all I mean it's very shallow of me to say it but he is a beautiful looking man (laughs) Roger Federer Elvis yep same same (laughs) he is he's a very attractive man and he can move beautifully but really at the end of the day it's that voice It's so fantastic for an untrained person to make all those variations of sound. I mean, it's just, he's a freak, really, isn't he? He is the role model that, you know, I use for performing. Mm. Talk to us about that. He just carried himself, in my opinion, he carried himself well the way he walks even he looks like a somebody a star and then of course he you know the way he felt the music when he sang it i know he got into a lot of trouble for that but you know with hindsight we look at that and we think it's so obvious that that's how you do it can you have a conversation with us please regarding this regarding the penmanship of the song and how the song is first I think when I started I just sang anything that came into my head but when I was at uni I found a book on writing lyrics and the general consensus of the book was you start with a title and you work back from that. So that's my only rule really because sometimes the song starts with the music and sometimes it's the the idea but before anything proceeds from there I'll work out the title first so you'll sit down with I assume still a pen write down that title then yep. dive in yep these days I'm, I'm enjoying playing guitar again so I'm often sitting with the guitar in my lap looking for new chord progressions to spark me off but if I'm on the piano it's the same thing why was there a detour away from the guitar for you? I think it's because at uni, you know, I was learning about a fairly high level, 
a harmony stuff and I could get my hands around a keyboard more easily to understand it because we had a class called keyboard studies it was called but really it was a harmony class they taught harmony through the keyboard so I did learn piano as a kid but I didn't enjoy it so I then I turned to the guitar but come uni time we had to do this keyboard lesson harmony lesson and that's where my real appreciation of harmony and chords and things started with the current batch of songs did you then take the guitar and songwriting first approach and then build up the layers because there are some gorgeous layers on this record i guess when you start some things you have a sense of how you think they're going to sound in the end so with a song like a horse called pablo once the song was written i toyed with the idea of because i quite like um the dark colors of the horn section the saxophones are a bit harsh for my style i think so i i'm drawn towards trombones and flugelhorns which have a a darker sound about them i thought they would work on this record let's talk about some issues and focusing on a track maybe like there was a time on the record yeah do you use the song kathy as a vehicle of a soapbox well i'm not sure about that but i don't want to write songs that don't say anything much even if they're a bit light and fluffy it's still got to have at the core of it something sensible something to hang on to there needs to be a message in there there needs to be even if it's really loose like inside my head's just a groove really but you know obviously it's a bit more than that there was a time a sense of reflection of of other times or, yeah. or where things could be at that was a, that's kind of an interesting one because it started off with that opening thing which is doesn't ever really reappear in the rest of the song and uh, i liken it to a a jazz tune song where you have the refrain which starts off the song and then the chorus which isn't a chorus but they call it a chorus is the main body of the song and when i was at uni there was some graffiti on the back of a toilet door that said you can say what you like but i still believe jesus loves me more than the rumblemall preachers and i liked that because it was really unusual so that was graffiti that was graffiti and then the the job is to try and make the rest of the song sort of tie in with that let's talk about remorse mm. there's a bit of that in this record you think mm. do you mm. reckon i think so mm. i'm i'm loosely saying it's about Love, loss and longing, the whole album. But some more than others, for sure, are about remorse. Does it help to put it on a record, to have a documentation that's public? Yeah, I'm, the jury's still out on that. And sometimes I think perhaps I shouldn't have done that, but... it's also just a song it's it's not actually i mean there's a lot of me in all of this stuff but it's not me the song is separate to me and the song like the one 
which I think is one of my better works. I just thought it's too good a song to keep to myself. Yet it is deeply remorseful in yes. its lyrics. Yeah. And I think about Joni Mitchell, that album Blue. Everybody said, you know, don't do it, Joni. Don't lay your heart on, on your sleeve quite so much. You're just giving away too much. But how could she not do that? That's one of the reasons we love her. I think because she taps into something that we all relate to. You know, it's quite healing a lot of the time because she's prepared to lay it all on the line and say, look, this is a big part of me. The canon of modern music these days, there does seem to be a lack of honesty in comparison. Yeah. Well, my thing is to try and be as authentic as I can be. If it is honest, well, okay, but really I'm just aiming to be real, to be true to me. And also I've got all these giants who have set the standard so high that I would like to try and aspire to do something, you know, like Paul Simon to me is just just so far ahead of us all. And of course Joni and Sting and... They're the big three for me. Instrumentally, I like Pat Metheny too. So that's the standard that I'm aspiring to. Remorse to memories, very much related but different. How do you treat memory? Well, I'm thinking about my mum right now because that's all I've got now is memories. Mm. And uh, I think I have to be, you have to be respectful of memories because, mind you, everybody's memory of the same thing can be different, can't it? You have these skills to write about them. I identify with the artist and the creative artist, so, and songwriting is my thing. So I, I guess you just do it. You just put these memories in their spots and then you call on them when you need them. And I think a lot of a lot of memories for me are more visceral than actual event things. I'll try and remember the feelings of those memories as much as anything. Because the other thing I find on this record is a sense of not just the memory, but also the resolve of the memory as well. Have you found comfort and outcome in that? Uh, that's a work in progress, I think. Still working through all that. And, you know, death is such a big thing, isn't it? That's just one of the things that I think I've dealt with, I'm dealing with. More than heartbreak? Well, they're, they're going hand in hand, really, aren't they? One I can talk about more easily than the other, perhaps, at this point. Mm. Yeah, oh, wow. That's a good question, John. I'll have to think about that and get back to you. Because it's throughout the album, that's why I asked the question. Yes, yeah, it's, um, it's a darkish sort of thing, this record, isn't it? This is a bit hard for me. I'm, feel, I'm still too close to all of these things to be objective enough but we have a physical 
copy of those memories. Yes. But even still talking about them, I find quite difficult for some reason. Perhaps it's because I just, that's just what I do. You know, once the song's out there, it's not up to me anymore to say what, what's what. Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide. You've released a physical album. It comes with an album cover. It comes with photography. It comes with an artwork on the cover. This record is different for me from previous ones because I outsourced a lot more. In the past, I've tried to do everything myself, mostly because I thought I could and because I didn't have the money to pay somebody else to do it all. So once I started, you know, asking for help with arrangements of horn sections, for example, because I'm, I'm not a horn player. Then it came to thinking about the cover and the black and white photography on the record is are done by a friend of mine who's also a musician but is also a photographer. I like sharing the, the love. Front cover imagery finally decided on a title and then looking for an image that matched that from Derek's work. That seemed to be the obvious one. Derek McClure is the photographer. He's a bass player, he's an artist and a photographer. He's a wonderful artist. I'm just really proud of what he does. I wanted to share that. There's an impressive, as you've touched on, an impressive collaboration you've had on this record as well you know Steve Todd who plays all the percussion and Sean Duncan to me are like my brothers you know I just I rate them so highly as people and as musicians and then for everybody else it was just a matter of asking and they all said yes produced locally as well in a wizard tone yes studios. wizard tone very good space and Jared Payne who was the sound engineer on the jobs very good I found him very very good to work with and because he's a musician first I think that helps enormously you want to be a fireman that that was a bit of a joke really I thought it might be it's a bit of fun I think it would be fun secret dream job would be to be a sporting sports commentator have you told anyone that no I'd love to do it I reckon it'd be great fun and that's the thing, like with the memories on this record, you need to put those dreams out there sometimes. And that's the same with some of the darker things as well. Yes, well, this is the thing that I'm le- I've discovered about since my mother's passing, is that we don't talk about death much or enough. And I think we should, because we're all going to experience it if we haven't already. And it's not pleasant but it's a reality. And I think the more we talk about it, the easier it will be. Not better, but Mm. easier. With your mother's passing, did your view change of death? I think so, but I'm not sure how. I think I'm still processing that, to be honest. But it's it's heavy. It's such a heavy thing. And I was fortunate enough to be with her when she passed, which I see as a huge privilege. It was awful. 
but got to be there and I think that must got that's got to be really um precious and special and tangible yeah 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 it was not a dream <laughs> I, I saw her go I saw her go so yeah so when we have that conversation regarding that moment mm-hmm. tears are part of it isn't aren't they you know can't avoid it it's this it's the whole thing you know if if you show weakness then then you must not you must be less than how do you acknowledge that moment in time then if you don't exactly as we've said we need to have the conversation so we have the understanding of what was that experience like talking to your mother in her final days oh really hard I didn't like it but you know was she trying to get you to accept or understand what was going on no I think I knew she had cancer and right near the end she just I think we all knew she wasn't going to make it so we all knew it was just a matter of when but I remember a conversation about the funeral she wanted me to sing at the funeral because I asked her what would you like played at you know special hymn or song and she said I'll leave that up to you <laughs> but if you could sing at it that would that would be lovely <laughs> and I said oh I don't think I can do it mum that's too hard it's really hard to sing when you're upset did you give it a go I had to in the end because the person that we had organized to do it pulled out on us and I thought well you know I'd, I think I'd rather do it and stuff it up than somebody else that was surely a sign I think so in the morning I went into the church to practice and just broke down I couldn't I thought how on earth am I going to do it? but come this actual service I did it I don't know how except that she must have helped me that's what I think anyway do we need to talk more with people about their beliefs of what happens from the moment of death onwards yeah as an everyday occurrence more. Yep, I, I think so. Just, I think we just need to talk about anything related about it. It's the way we humans deal with stuff, is to talk about it. Or this one of the big ways that we do. Your album's called Inside My Head. Mm. The conversation one can have in their head is that of their own demise, passing. Yep. Is that a conversation you yourself have? Oh, yeah, especially since mum's passing because it's it's so real. (laughs) It's it's shockingly close. It's like you sort of use, yeah, I think it's an age thing and the experience of somebody passing away or dying makes you start thinking about all that stuff. By doing so, Kathy, does it give one a sense that the time here sounds very dramatic, but it is the case the time here is more precious to fit more in? Yeah. I'm I'm trying really hard to live in the moment now, from now on, because things like cancer, just they're just indiscriminate, aren't they? They're just, we have no idea how we're going to go. 
And my mum was so shocked when she found out she had cancer. She said, what did I do wrong? I said, well, you actually didn't do anything wrong, mum. That's just, that's how it is with cancer. It's now or never. It's very hard to do, though, because, you know, when you're of a certain age, you think you've got loads of time ahead of you. And I'm not going to worry about that now. Why should I worry about, you know? But actually, I think, for me anyway, thinking about the end is important. I mean, we all know people who've lost loved ones too soon. I don't know how that must, I don't know how that people do that. I don't know how they deal with that. That one is tough. Mm. Actually, I, I made another CD of songs. Sounds really morbid, songs to die to, because mm-hmm. I had a music teacher who had cancer in the end, and people would send him music to listen to, but in the end he was in such pain he couldn't even listen to music it was too jarring on his senses or something and I just thought it was cruel that you spend your whole life dedicated to that this thing music thing and then in the end you can't enjoy it so I made a CD of music that would be very gentle and you know it's off a lot of it's Christian based I mean it's all Christian based actually that people can listen to, and my mum listened to that over and over and over again and one of the songs was my own, which is called On the Side of the Angels, and I was performing it at a at a performance in Tail and Bend for Ian McNamara, Australia all over. When he, he bopping through. Yeah, he does. Do a couple of concerts here and there, and he asked me to sing because he played something I did when I was just out of uni a lot. And I sang this particular song it's called On the Side of the Angels, and a man died in the middle of it at this concert. Oh, gosh, it was such a shock. Because I, I watched him die because they suggested that I keep playing because he didn't die straight away. He sort of collapsed he was right in the front row. You couldn't miss him. And he collapsed and they called the ambulance and the audience just sat really still and patiently and quietly and respectfully while they attended to this man. <laughs> it's incredible. On the Side of the Angels was a full-length album, as you said. It, it had two originals on there from memory. Oh, yes, that's right. What were the covers, I guess, on the record? What were you drawing on for that? You said it was quite a religious album? Yeah. Um, there's an Adelaide uh, singer-songwriter who writes predominantly community-based songs of a Christian nature. Mm-hmm. And he's put together a bunch of books compilation books of all these songs from people mostly Australian songwriters that they use in church services essentially they're like hymns modern day hymns but I took them and made them more performance type songs and put them in different keys and just slowed them down just made them a bit more reflective we're talking about having a conversation with Kathy Renner. This comes after her mother's passing very recently, who grew up with you in the Brossa, or lived in the Brossa, mm-hmm. Brossa area. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether or not you have a sense that it's easier or harder when someone has a religious faith 
when having a conversation about death? Does that make it easier or harder? Uh, you'd like to think it makes it easier because they're not so afraid or they think they know what's to come mm. or something. You know, the afterlife, you, you go to live, live in heaven if you're a believer and that, you know, it's painted as this lovely place. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to go there? So that's something Christians look forward to, I think. Where those that are not of faith might just think it's a lights-out scenario. Yeah. Nothing to be scared of. It's just lights out. Well, that's true too, yeah. I've never actually... No, maybe... I, no, even with my mum, I didn't. we didn't talk about what was going to happen or anything like that. We didn't actually talk about the actual death and the, what happens next. It was too hard, I think. How do you as a singer-songwriter look over that landscape when we're talking about death and get a sense of perspective? Mm. I think you take a bit from everything because it's just a bit weird, the whole dying thing. I don't like the idea of it myself. Does it make sense it, to no, you? No, it doesn't make sense no. to me. I don't get it. What's the point then of living? If if there's nothing else afterwards, what, what why then? What is reincarnation a thing then? Do we do we actually come back? I don't I have no idea. I don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't I don't you know, it's probably good that this has all happened because it's forcing me to talk about something that I don't get and I don't like. You know, we all have to face it eventually, I suppose. Hmm. Wow, this conversation has really turned dark, hasn't it? It's good. <laughs> wow. Has your mother spoken to you since her passing? Uh, not, no, no, I don't think, well, I mean, I see her a lot in lots of things. And I sort of talk to her and say, you know, you would have loved that, Mum, or watching a show on the television because she had a great sense of humour and we would laugh our heads off at stuff because she's you know she always got that so I remember things like that and sometimes when I'm looking for a car park I said all right mum keep your eye out <laughs> and sometimes it works <laughs> I would like actually a real sign from her to say what well, I don't know what she would say but my sister had a dream though which I thought was quite interesting she said she was in the hospital because that's where my mum ended up hmm. in in the hospital bed and the nurses said oh there's some people here to see you oh the next thing the door flung open and mum appeared and just seemed to sweep into the room and my sister said oh mum oh you're here and mum hovered over her head and then just broke up into pieces and all over oh, wow that's cool I would like to have that <laughs> I don't know what that means or anything but <laughs> do you get the idea she's hanging out with some real rockers oh yeah she'd be in good company <laughs> she'd be making them laugh and setting them straight my mum liked to do things well and correctly. She didn't suffer fools. You started recording this album post her death. Mm -hmm. 
how much of a conversation about Inside My Head, the record that's now out, did you have with her about your plans to release another solo record? I don't think I did, actually, because she died in 2017 and we retired Vincent's chair at the beginning of last year. This was the band you were in for the seven, band, 17 yes, years. 17 years. So, I mean, I, we, I had no idea that any of that was going to happen. So we didn't talk to her about it. Hmm. Is there a record in you that's purely dedicated to her memory? Or more importantly, her life? Possibly. Who knows? Could be. I think there's a bit of mum in everything I do now. Certainly everything I see interesting really how that trickles down into your everyday life she she was I mean I know I'm biased but people loved her they really when they got to know her because she didn't she didn't have loads of friends she wasn't that sociable but when she touched your life she really touched your life and people cherished that I think she had a good sense of people how they ticked. Why cover Don McLean? Well, it's a beautiful song. I was in a band called Vincent's Chair for 17 years. It seemed like a good idea to link that to this new phase somehow. But gosh, it's a good song. I should ask, we weren't going to talk about Vincent's Chair, which you were part of for 17 years, but we're at the back end of the chat, so if people are still listening, they deserve to hear that nugget. <laughs> okay. And it is this. Who decided to end the chair? It was a collective decision by Karen Donati and myself. Who's worked on this album as well? Yes. Played on it as well in the string section called the Ruby Frost Quartet. Uh, yeah, Karen and I ran Vincent's Chair all that time. And uh, we gave it our best shot. We did everything ourselves, which is, I think, quite an achievement, really, seeing as how we're really just musicians. <laughs> and there are real skills in marketing and managing things. And, you know, we went overseas lots of times, touring with it, and made all those CDs by ourselves. So I think you get tired after a while. And... You know, other members of the group were moving in different directions, so it just it just seemed like the right time. And look, we never say never. You never know. A completely different sound as well. I think I hope so. I mean, Vince's chair had a set lineup, set colours. This new one, I got a broader palette to draw on. So hopefully, it sounds different. But obviously, my voice is the glue. He holds it all together and is the common thing. And for the record, you're excited about the adventures that the other members are now going on themselves. Oh, yeah, definitely. They don't, they don't need Vincent's chair for excitement. There's so much stuff out there to be done. Kathy Renner, thank you very much for your time and opening up your heart during this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Kathy Renner. Inside My Head, recorded at Wizard Tone Studios and available through kathyranna.hearnow.com, also can be found on Bandcamp. 
Martin Kennedy and All India Radio there with some selective eclectic strings. Before that, our feature guest, who now also can be found at kathyrennermusic.com. So really no excuse to not check their music if you wish. Radio Notes Discoveries. Putting this episode together, came across a live stream into a radio studio in Plenty Valley, that's in Victoria, Australia, where a country-leaning country singer was sharing some tunes and a chat with Harry, I think the announcer's name was. The artist, though, Emily Hatton. And latest music video from them recorded in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, using those desert-like sand dunes they have there. Also across my desk in recent days, a four-track by Keegan Bowen called Aesthetic Space. Quick count, over ten releases from them, and been dipping in and out of this electric soundscapes. Also appears you can purchase their music in Bitcoin. The latest from them, quite the treat to the ears. One more, I'm likely late to the artist's musical party, Harley Mavis, in recent days released a new cut called Thief. If you know their past work, or new like me, strikingly engaging, though, like many in their generation, still feel the need to drop a curse word, where, well, it's not Lennon's working class hero, as part of their lyrical conversation. What would I know? If it connects with their audience, and it's still a cracking tune, then all the power to them. Just a heads up, it does have some curse words in it. Which reminds me, next week's guest also dropped a few swear words. Got to remember to beat those out for you for next episode. And who will they be with? It'll be this guest. Rarely ever remember performing. Like, it's such a... Um, I remember Brisbane pretty well, but I don't remember Hamer Hall. Like, and I remember standing on that stage and saying, take it in, remember it. But because I was so in my own head on stage because I was, I think, Hamer Hall, home show, very nervous, biggest show I've ever played, like 2,500 people, hometown audience, the most beautiful venue I've ever stepped foot in. That room is just out of control, stunning. You know, it's like three levels as well. Very odd. It was just this really surreal experience and I was just like, what is that? And it was just me, you know, so just like one human playing to all of those people. It's quite strange, like it's a very odd feeling. Yeah, and I had a very leaky water bottle that kept leaking all over me, which the crowd, you know, were, they sent me a lot of water bottle suggestions after. You know, I've got to get a new one. It's very embarrassing. Turns out the acoustics are really good there, though, because I could talk to the back of the room without a microphone. Bats. A minute plucked from next week's episode, just at random. Speaking there about performing at Hamer Hall as a support for none other than Sharon Van Etten, you'll hear more about that in our conversation next episode. Off the charts. Cast and I of the Australian Recording Industry Association charts. A sixth time a number one album has been had by this artist, the artist being Kylie Minogue, debuting at number one with Step Back in Time, the definitive collection. Pushing Billie Eilish down to two with Where We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? Chris Brown. Not the doctor, but the one who uh, reportedly, allegedly, did actually, you know, that one. Indigo, in at number three, hitting the charts. The Black Keys, brand new at four with Let's Rock. And Bruce Springsteen pushes down from two to five with Western Star. Elton John still in at six, down a bit. Number seven, also down from four, is Pink with Hurts to be Human. Little Nas X in at 8, down from 5. Ed Sheeran jumps from 13 to 9. But a re-entry in at 10. Pink, Beautiful Trauma. 
Uh, its highest position was number one, and it's been in the charts for 53 weeks in total. Jimmy Barnes' My Criminal Record jumps from six down to 16. Billie Eilish, Don't Smile at Me, the other record, from 19 down to 24. Drake has gone double platinum in Australia, down to 27, just one spot from 26. Madonna, as I mentioned last week, would be on her way out soon. She's out of the top 20. She's now in 32 position, down from 8. In excess, the best of sees a slight jump, one position up to 39, having spent 251 weeks in the chart and now six-time platinum. And Lang Lang's Piano Book, brand new at number 49. Let's have a quick look at the singles charts for Australia. Just reaffirming, this is the Australian version of the charts. I appreciate we're broadcasting in different parts across the world. Just to let you know, the number one there, Lil Nas X, Old Town Road, is still sitting pretty at number one. Taylor Swift's You Need to Calm Down, down from five to nine. Hey, Australia, it's Katy Perry. I have a new song. It's called Never Really Over, and I hope you love it. Thanks, Katy Perry. Your tune that you just mentioned, down from 10 to 13. It appears that new Chris Brown album also features a song with Justin Bieber. There you go. Brand new at number 20. The track is called Don't Check On Me. And with a high level of radio airplay in Australia, Birds of Tokyo go from 41 to 42. Amy Shark from 46 up to 43. Let's jump over to the Australian Artist Album Chart. Of course, Kylie Minogue will be number one there. Morgan Evans is a re-entry at number two. Jimmy Barnes goes from one to three on this particular chart. And still going strong, the Hilltop Hoods steady at number five. And Keith Urban re-enters at number 20. Vinyl Albums always brings up some interesting ones. Kylie Minogue, of course, number one there. And a re-entry at number nine on the vinyl album charts, Powderfingers Internationalist. Nice to see. Brand new at number three on the Australian vinyl album charts is Unknown Pleasures, the 40th anniversary from Joy Division. It also reminds me that Peter Hook will be doing a Australian tour in the not-too-distant future, depending when you're listening to this. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. Next time, Bats. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 